Mark tells us that it's really the gospel about Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah prophesied from ancient days. We saw that in the beginning, but also Jesus who is the new beginning of a new creation. Heaven breaking into earth. The, the perfect Son of God completely identifying himself with sinful and broken humanity. The one who had no sin taking the baptism of repentance. The one who battled the temptation of Satan and did what every other man and woman has failed to do throughout all of time. He came out victorious. The perfect Son of Man, Son of God. And now for the first time in Mark's Gospel, although he didn't wait too long, Mark's about immediately, right away, suddenly, it's happening, it's moving, it's a moving Gospel. Now Jesus has something to say. Mark chapter 1, we'll just start with 14 and 15. We're only going to be going through 20 this morning. 14 and 15, after John... John the Baptist, right, was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So we notice first our, our kind of sobering context here that it was at the time that John was put in what? Prison. So it's, it's really interesting. Mark lays this context out. John is put in prison. The kind of the wild prophet in the wilderness is now locked in a dark dungeon cell. And it, it really seems to be quite an irony here because here comes Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God Yet God's man, John, is now seemingly so easily put away by the evil kingdom of men. So clearly this kingdom of God that Jesus speaks of is going to be different than our common perception of earthly dominion. Mark will go on to describe the circumstances later of John's arrest and his, and his uh, ultimate execution, actually all the way in chapter 6. But for now it seems um, to suffice that, John said, that Mark says that John has done his part. Uh, John is an example for us, but a hard example to follow. It's John that says in, in the Apostle John... The, the, Gospel, chapter 3, verse 30, he must become greater. Speaking of Jesus, I must become less. So we, we have this, this sobering context of after John is put in prison. We also get this second note of context that Jesus goes into Galilee. And so this is a fulfillment, actually, of a prophecy that we see in the first two verses of Isaiah, that a light will now break forth into the darkness in this province of Galilee. It's the northernmost region of first century Palestine. It's a very interesting area. Nazareth is there, 
um, where Jesus was born. Capernaum is there, kind of his base of operations, where Peter has a house. Um, the Sea of Galilee is there. And it's, it's known at that time, actually in the prophecy says, Galilee, anybody know in, in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, it speaks of Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles, because it's a place of a lot of mixed cultures, right? Jew and Gentile alike. And in the first century, it's a very busy place. It's a place where a lot of, all sorts of Gentiles are coming through and trading and it's a place that's known to be, um, at that time, a bit uncouth. So if you were from Galilee and you traveled down to, to Jerusalem, they'd say, ah, oh, I know you by that dumb dialect. You know, you're from that northern region in Galilee. They were known for their dialect. Uh, they were known for some poor manners. Reminds me of, like, New Jersey a little bit. <laughs> right? A little uncouth. So it's this, it, what's cool is that Jesus, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, his path will eventually set his face like flint toward Jerusalem to be God's sacrifice for sin. But he begins in this cultural crossroads of Galilee, showing that the message, the good news, is not just for the race of the Jews and for Israel, praise God, right? Because we are Gentiles and that message has come to us. It is for us. Jesus begins his ministry with this straightforward proclamation of the good news of God. It's, it's, we hear in this that it's news which God is both the author and the object. The good news of God. And he starts with saying, the time has come. Or maybe some of your Bibles say the time has been fulfilled. And it, it, so we kind of get this sense that this is the first thing Jesus says in Mark's gospel. The time has come. The time has been fulfilled. There's a fullness of time. You get this sense of kind of like it's, a, it's like the clock strikes 12 type of moment. All that God deemed necessary throughout the thousands of years before throughout eternity, really, and what happened in the Garden of Eden and what happened with Noah and what happened with Mo Abraham and what happened with Moses and what happened with the nation of Israel and what happened through the prophets and now what happened with that, that last great prophet, John the Baptist, what happened in Jesus' baptism, what happened in the temptation and victory over Satan, all that needed to happen, when it needed to happen, has happened. And now the God that lives outside of time says, it is time. Ooh. God, outside of time, says it is time. And his time is perfect. That's hard for us while we're in the waiting. We sing that about, about that this morning. And God, what are you doing? And I'm not sure. And I don't see. And his time is perfect. The time has come, the time has been fulfilled, the time is now, the clock is striking 12, Jesus speaks. But time for what? What do you think? Time for what? What do you see in the context? What do you see in his words? Time for what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near... Or again, could be translated at hand or has come. 
Now, when we hear kingdom, we tend to think of place. We tend to think, of, think kind of geography. We are a part of the United States of America. Over, if you went over the Atlantic Ocean, you would come to this island kingdom of England and, and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland called the United Kingdom. We tend to think of geography. But the kingdom of God is less of a place among other places as much as it is, and this is the understanding in the Aramaic, about a kingly rule. It's it's about a kingly reign. It, It points us less to a place than it does a sovereign ruler. There's a king. The king is God. And he has a dominion. Jesus says, hey, there's going to be some that say, hey, the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is there. And he's like, no, the kingdom of God ends up in in you. It's interesting. (laughs) But in what sense is this kingdom rule at hand? At what sense is it near? Because we can say that something that's very true, that God always has and always will reign as supreme king. The prophets have told us that. David sung about it out in the fields all the time, right? That God is king. He is supreme over all his creation, seen and unseen. So in what sense, in this fullness of time, is it now near? Is it now present? Is it now at hand? I think we can say that the kingly rule of God is now at hand in the sense that it is manifested in flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, the kingdom, and again, when we hear kingdom, it can be just as well to think of kingdom or kingly rule. Right? The rule of a king. The dominion and authority of a, of a king. The dominion, the kingdom, the rule of God is now near because Jesus is on the scene. I kind of, I kind of part of me says, well, is that good news or is that terrifying news? If Jesus says, well, here I am, (laughs) the kingly rule of God is at hand, is present, is among you. I say, man, that makes me excited and really scared. (laughs) But Jesus says it is, in fact, what? Good news. The best of news. I think Megan likes to say that. The best of news. But... It's the best of news as long as you respond to it accordingly, right? And then Jesus invites, he gives an invitation to do just that. The invitation is to repent and believe the good news. So here, what Jesus does is he lays out an opportunity. Now, repentance is not just about feeling bad. Well, I feel bad about doing this or that or the other thing. I feel, I feel sorry. Mark Twain writes about uh, 
Huck Finn's pappy. He says, the old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance and such things, said he'd been a fool and was going to turn over a new leaf, and everyone hugged him and cried and said it was the holiest time on record. And that night he got drunker than he had ever been before. Now we've all likely participated in that kind of sorry, in that kind of feeling bad, but that's not repentance. Repentance is to turn around. It's to have this, this whole life change of heart, change of mind, change of, change of orientation, change of direction, away from walking away from God and now turning toward the Lord, away from my ways of sin and now putting my face toward him. As Jesus says, here's the kingly rule of God I'm among you. David Garland, a man named David Garland says, Jesus' call to repent is not a caustic, harsh or scathing reprimand, but an invitation to switch allegiances. I like that. Now, do you become perfect overnight? Ooh, no. No, I prayed for the first time when I was six years old. I still remember it. Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. Please come into my heart, whatever. I remember that moment. I'm still far from perfect. You can ask Cheryl, right? But I want my heart's trajectory to be in a different direction. Now it's toward God. Repent, turn around, change of mind, change of direction, change of orientation. But along with this repentance must come believing and believing is not just some mental assent or acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, well, I believe that's true. Well, yes, I believe that's true. It's not just this coming to this higher spiritual plane. Whoa, it's kind of ambiguous. It's, it's, it's this movement of trust, of putting my faith in God so deeply that I am committed and I surrender and my devotion is to his kingly rule. Because we, we mess it up on our own. See, it's either your rule or God's rule. That is the choice. And, and if you haven't admitted it yet, your rule of your own life doesn't look that pretty. You may paint it up to look pretty good every once in a while, but I'm not stupid. Because I know enough about myself to know how you rule your own life doesn't always work out that well and is not going to end up getting you back to God. But Jesus says, kingdom of God is here. Turn around, come face to face with it, change your orientation and believe. Put your trust in me. Put your faith in me. It has to go hand in hand, repentance and believing. Um, in the NFL, there's a little, in the NFL, right? Any of you football fans? I'm a football fan. So in the NFL, Myron. <laughs> Myron. <laughs> go again, give it back to Myron. No, give it back to me. Give it back to me. What? No, yeah, no. Please throw it. Please throw it. 
I, I promised the kids I was going to do this. So, all right, so watch out, Myron. Yes, okay. So in the NFL, a catch is only a catch when you, okay, you receive the ball, but then you have to make a, anybody know? Football move, which is a little, you got to make this football move. So if I receive the ball and I take this catch and Michael comes along and clobbers me and the ball is out of my hands, that's not a catch, right? So I got to catch the ball, I got to receive it, and I got to make a football move. I got to turn up field, I got to take that third step, I got to get two feet in bounds, right? I've got to stretch over the goal line, I have to make a football move. I have to move. I have to receive it and I have to move. A catch is only a catch when there is reception and direction. You might say, oh, well, that sounds awful good. And Satan comes along and clobbers you and knocks the ball out. But it's got to be faith with repentance, repentance with faith. Listen, you, with, apart from repentance, oh, man, I'm getting excited. <laughs> apart from repentance, there really is no belief. And apart from belief, there really is no repentance. they got to go hand in hand. It's got to be reception and direction. Does that make sense? John Phillips says, Repentance signifies a change of direction. Faith toward the Lord Jesus signifies a change in devotion. So this good news is, really is tremendous news as long as I respond to it accordingly. If Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God is right here in your presence, and I'm like, yeah, no thanks, I'm going to continue my own rule, well, then, then it becomes really bad news. But the Lord is laying out an opportunity. Just turn around. Just turn around. Trust me. Verses 16 through 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had a little far, farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus has given this call toward repentance and belief, repentance and faith. Now he gives, we could say, a kind of a second invitation. He had sent out a wide invitation to the masses, but you know what? That invitation has to become personal. So he says, yeah, repent and believe in the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. But then he says, yo, Peter, yo, Andrew, yo, sons of thunder, James and John. Hey, Hope, hey, Becky, hey, Mel, hey, Daniel, hey, Joe. Come on, follow me. 
We hear this practical and personal outworking of this repentance and belief. And where does, where does Jesus call these followers from? Does he go down to Jerusalem and he look up the, the greatest scholars at some rabbinical school? No. He goes to the hardworking, working class, rough around the edges, yes. you know, people. That's what he does. These guys that are, you know, blowing snot rockets out of their nose and fixing their nets and, you know, leathered up with the sun. He walks along the beach and he's like, there's my guys. Yeah, it's not rockets got you, right? That's uh... <laughs> ordinary people. He calls them into his family business. He's still doing that. You're like, well, I didn't go to seminary. Guess what? Here's, here you go. I didn't either. And I'm not knocking that. That's, that can be beautiful. God, God's got training for all different people. But like, you're like, I'm ordinary. I, I'm, I'm rough around the edges. I'm perfect. Perfect. Come follow me. Walk with me. But allow me to lead and allow me to model the way. It's very clear here. And this is what I love. You know what, Deb? I'm just like laughing inside. I'm laughing inside. This is what I love. It's very clear that to respond to Jesus is not just to admire him. Oh, Jesus, you're great. And it's not just to um, agree with him. Well, Jesus, I think your doctrines are pretty right on. I've studied up pretty hard and there's a few things I'm uncomfortable with. But it's not to admire him. It's not just to agree with him. It's to move with him. Right? So that's the spirit of God. It's to move with him. Christianity isn't a static religion. It's a life in motion following the kingly rule of God in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things that call out to us. Lust and greed and comfort and safety and Apathy and money and self-importance and self-indulgence and self-centeredness and power and anger and bitterness and everything's vying for our attention. Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. And Jesus is like, you got to turn from all that. And there's got to be one voice you listen to. Come follow me, Jesus says. And it's beautiful because Jesus is determined, we see this even in the earliest stages, to form a new community after himself. This work will not be done and received by just kind of a disconnected mass of individuals and individualists. It will be this unexpected band of men and women that Jesus calls to himself and says, you will move at one, as one. And you will be one together. It'll be messy, but you're going to be one together. I'm going to make it happen. And you're going to follow me together. Follow his kingly rule, moving with him. And this invitation, come follow me, means that Jesus is going somewhere, right? It means he's going somewhere. And he's on a mission. I love this. David Garland again, he, he says that he's on a mission to catch men in the nets of God's grace. In the nets of God's grace. He's inviting these men to join with him. 
He's still inviting. Still inviting. These disciples are called to make more disciples, and those disciples will be called to make more disciples. And here we are 2,000 years later, and many of you are the product of that good news being passed person to person to person to person. A community of God's salvation and, and mission. And to choose to follow Jesus is a choice to have him reform, or maybe I should say better transform their identity. So you got to see this again. I believe that Mark is, is playing with this idea of a new creation in the beginning. Jesus is the, the agent of this new creation. And now he comes to these guys with, with word pictures that they'd understand, and he's like, I'm going to make something new in you. You were fishermen. I will make you fishers of men. See, whose work is it? Whose work is it? Yeah, it's God's work. It's Jesus' work. You were fishermen. I will, creative agent, make you into something new. You know what you need to do? You need to turn. You need to have faith. You need to move in that faith. You need to follow. And as you do that, you will not make yourself into a new creation. Jesus is like, that work is up to me. I will make you. He wants to reform and transform your identity. You're not just a, when you come to Jesus, you're not just a mom. Not that that's just. I mean, that's beautiful. That's full of purpose. But that's got a certain life to it. And you're not just a student. And you're not just a truck driver or a business owner. A farmer, a waiter, a salesman. He says, now you're my disciple. And then as this unfolds and blossoms out, you are God's child. You are his loved son or daughter. You have a completely new identity in him. So you may be a mom, but that's secondary. That gets filtered through. I'm a son and daughter of Jesus. I'm his disciple, and I'm a disciple maker. I may be a truck driver. I may be a salesman. I may be a business owner. But my identity really in Christ is that I am his love child. I am the one that has put my faith in him and turned in him to him and followed him, and he is making me something new. Amen? Forgiven, restored, made alive, set on a mission to catch others in the nets of God's grace. But to follow Jesus... <laughs> if we're honest, is much more radical than our American middle-class sensibilities allow for, right? Uh, Christians say, you know, salvation costs nothing. It costs Jesus everything. And that's 100% true. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift of God. But what is also true is that discipleship does cost you everything. Because you've got to give up whatever you're holding on to. 
That's why Jesus can say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. And as we wrap up here, this response of these men leaves us with this powerful example. They respond at once without delay. They are decisive. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. There's no room for procrastination. (laughs) Well, let me go weigh this out for the next 15 years. They leave their possessions. They leave their occupations. They leave... John and, and James leave their dad standing on the boat. Mark's like gracious, I think. He's like, don't worry, they've got hired hands. <laughs> but, you know, like Zebedee, I mean, I, what, what was going on in dad's heart? And maybe there was something, right? Some of us dads and moms have had to let go. Hey, hey mom and dad, and Julie says, I'm going to move to Indonesia. Oh. But they leave all this stuff behind. And you know what? God, God may not call you to leave behind your current occupation. But what if he did? He may not call you to move away from your, your ambitions and your dreams. But what if he did? He may not call you to move away from your family that you love. And have, but what if he did? He may not call you to leave your prized possessions or or the things that make you feel secure, but what if he did? Jesus will invariably call us to leave something or many somethings in the past so we can move on to a future with him. So I think we have to ask ourselves, what are the nets for me? What are the boats for me? What's, what's the dad standing in the boat for me? What, what, what grades against this call, this radical call of discipleship? What grades against my American middle class sensibilities? Well, that's a little crazy. That's a little, yeah. Maybe even this week when you say, Lord, what are you calling us to leave? So I can go deeper with you. Maybe it's, maybe it's not even stuff, right? Maybe it's my defensiveness. Maybe it's my, my incessant need for approval. Maybe it's my tremendous fear of looking dumb if I take a step of faith. What do I need to leave behind? The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. The kingly rule of God. Repent and believe the good news. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the garden. And that sweet fellowship, that sweet fellowship was broken because of sin. And now here's Jesus on the scene again, saying, hey, come walk with me again. The beautiful thing is that it's only available to us because of what we will celebrate next. Mike, can I invite you up?